Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. When Jesus returns to the earth, it'll be seen by all. It'll be unmistakable. And as we pick up our study today in Revelation chapter 1, Pastor Phil describes the Lord's coming and the response of mankind to his arrival. Let's join him now as he brings us today's teaching. But Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. Now what you would not get from the English is in verse 10, Jesus uses two different Greek words for this washing. In verse 10, he said, he who is what? Bathed. That's the Greek word luo. Same word that we're looking at here in Revelation 1. He has washed us from our sins through his own blood, right? Then he goes on and says, he who is bathed, luo, needs only to wash his feet. That's the Greek word nipto. Let me explain what's going on, because they would have understood this. We have to study it to get what's going on. When they got up in the morning, they took a complete bath, a luo. They washed themselves from head to foot, you know, and they were completely clean. But again, because they walked everywhere on dirt roads with open sandals, when they got to a house, they needed to wash their feet, nipto. Luo, a complete cleansing, Nipto, it's just washing your feet. That's all it is. And the idea is this. Once we are saved, once we receive Christ, we are luo. We are washed completely. In fact, the word there for bathed in verse 10, the word luo, it's in the perfect tense. What does that mean? Something in Greek in the perfect tense signifies something that happened in the past But the effects are continuous and unending. So once you're washed of your sins by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, you're completely cleansed, aren't you? And that cleansing happened the moment you received Christ. So for everyone here, it was at one point in the past. But the effects continue on through the present and forever. Folks, you don't have to get saved every week. You don't have to keep getting saved because you blow it, like some churches teach. We just need to have our feet washed from time to time. What does that mean? Well, the feet speak of what? Your walk, right? I mean, you have no feet, you're defeated, so your walk isn't so good. but. (laughs) But the idea is that once you're saved, you don't need to keep getting resaved. You're washed once for all. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews 10, verse 17, and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. That's luo. But because we are living in a defiled world, as we walk through this world, we're going to pick up some of the dirt, some of the thinking, and sometimes we give into it and we sin. We need to wash ourselves in the sense of repent, confess those sins. Look, 
when I was washed in the blood of Christ and was saved, that established my union with Jesus. That union is unbreakable. It's eternal. But when I sin, I need to confess my sins. The Bible says if we sin and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That deals with communion. See, my union with Christ is eternal. But my practical communion with Jesus, that depends on how well I walk with him. And if I do pick up some of the dirt of the world, I need to confess it, repent of it, ask his forgiveness. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 5, we wash in the water of the word. It's a good idea to come home from work and take a bath in the word of God. Get it, get, let it cleanse your thinking, you know, just, you know, just wash in the word. That helps to establish and keep our communion with Jesus going. So the Christian life consists of one bath, but many foot washings. All right. How about that? Back in Revelation chapter one, again, it says that he who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Verse six, and has made us kings and priests to our God and Father. Some of your translations may translate translate that, has made us a kingdom of priests. Uh, I like the one, the King James and the New King James, uh, how they translate it. Uh, He has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I like that because it does speak of how that we are going to reign with him someday. In fact, in a, uh, Revelation 5, verse 10, it says, and talking about Jesus and what he's done for us, the redeemed are saying, and you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. When are we going to reign on the earth as believers? During the millennial kingdom, right? Remember the parable that Jesus gave of the Ten talents. He said, you know, master gave one servant five talents, another two talents, another one talent. Said, look, I'm going to go on a trip. I want you to invest these things, and when I come back, we'll see how you did. Well, the man who had five talents invested it wisely, used it wisely, and made ten. And when the master came back, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. Now, I'll make you ruler over ten cities. In the millennial kingdom, we are going to rule. And depending on how faithful we have been to the Lord right now and what he's called us to do will determine our degree of authority in the kingdom age. So we will reign with him someday. But right now, we are priests. We are priests. And that's a radically, if you're a Jewish person, that's a radical idea. Because they grew up under the Levitical priesthood which said that nobody could come into God's presence except a priest. Uh, They could only go into the first part of the tabernacle, the holy place. When you walk into the tabernacle proper, there was two rooms, basically. The first room was the holy place. To your left, there was the menorah, the uh, seven-branched oil-burning lamp. To the right, there was the small golden table of showbread, which had the 12 loaves uh, set on it every week, baked fresh, each for the 12 tribes. Uh, Directly in front was the small golden altar of incense, which is right before a veil, very thick veil, 
that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, which represented God's throne on the earth, and the very presence of God was said to dwell between the cherubim over the mercy seat. Now, a priest, and only a priest, could come into that first compartment. And what happens was, if I had sinned back in Israel, and I was a Jew, I would bring my animal sacrifice to the priest. He would offer it on the altar of sacrifice there, outside the temple proper in the courts. And after he would offer the sacrifice for my sin, he would then go into that first compartment, and he would burn incense on the golden altar for me, which represented prayer. And God would pronounce a blessing. God promised to forgive and to bless those who would, if they sinned, bring atonement in the form of an animal sacrifice. So the priest, after he had made atonement, would come back out and pronounce a blessing on the sinner, on myself. But see, the priest was a constant reminder that I wasn't worthy to come into God's presence directly. See, I was a sinner. I needed a mediator. When Jesus died... Of course, his blood paid for our sins. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. The moment that Jesus died, as we've already talked about this many times, he bowed his head, dismissed his spirit. At that very instant, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It was God's way of saying, it's open house. Anybody who receives my son is in Christ And therefore, they have the right now to come into my presence because of the blood that he shed. What's important that you understand that you never combine the office of a king and a priest in the Old Testament. That was forbidden. In fact, I want to show you one man who tried it. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. His name was King Uzziah, who for many years was a good king brought a lot of needed reforms to the southern kingdom of Judah. But it says in verse 16 of Second Chronicles 26, But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men, And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the uh, incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and there in his forehead was leprosy. Excuse me, he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. What I want you to see through this story is this. Even though Uzziah was a king, he was king over all of Israel. He took it upon himself 
to decide that he was going to approach God on his terms. He knew the law said that only the priests, the sons of Levi, could enter into the priesthood and minister to the Lord. But Uzziah decided, you know what, I don't like that. I'm a king. I'm going to do what I want to do. Leprosy in the scripture is a type of sin. And I think the Holy Spirit is just teaching us that if a person tries to enter God's presence any other way than what God has prescribed, how do we enter into his presence? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. And once I receive Christ, I am now in Christ, who is the great high priest. I can come boldly into God's presence because of what Jesus did. If I seek to come any other way, what did Jesus say? That he was the... uh, the door of the sheepfold. Anyone who tries to come into the sheepfold any other way than through the door, the same as a thief and robber. If a person tries to climb up into heaven any other way except through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the door that leads to salvation, God is saying that he will curse them and they will live forever outside the house of God, outside the fellowship of God. In other words, they're going to be spending eternity in hell. Because we don't get to choose how we approach God. We don't get to say, well, Lord, I don't like what you've said. I think I can get to you by being a good person. I don't want to receive Jesus. I'm going to be a real good person. That's how I'm going to approach you. God's saying, you will be treated like a leper and will be cast out into the outer darkness. Because God doesn't negotiate. He has provided a way. I'm I'm happy there's a way. People want to get angry because he didn't provide ten ways. I'll tell you what, God could provide in a million ways, and somebody would have been upset that he didn't provide a million and one ways. That's just human nature. I'm just thankful he provided a way for us to approach him and to be saved and so on. So through the new covenant, of course, Jesus in the New Testament is called both priest and king. And because we are in him, we are now a kingdom of kingdom of priests and kings. So, verse 7, John said, Behold, he is coming with clouds. He is coming with clouds. Turn to Daniel 7. This is reminiscent of something Daniel saw. Daniel had quite a few visions himself of the end times. Some of them were pretty spectacular. But in Daniel 7, verse 13, Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. What are these clouds? All right. Or should I say, who are these clouds? I believe it is referring to all of us. I believe it's referring to the church, the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are returning to the earth with Jesus to establish his kingdom. Turn to Jude, verse 14. There's only one chapter in Jude, so it's just verse 14 I want you to turn to. I want to just show you a few of these verses here. Jude, verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with... Ten thousands of his saints. Turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 1. The writer says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How about Revelation 19? In Revelation 19, at one point we see John is describing what he is seeing, actually. He sees the Lord Jesus coming back to the earth, riding a white horse. And in verse 14, it says, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. This army, I believe, is God's saints, the church, coming with Jesus in the sky, riding on white horses, clothed in white robes of righteousness. And from a distance, what is it going to look like? Jesus coming with a beautiful cloud of saints. He comes with clouds, with ten thousands of his saints. And every eye, John went on to say in verse 7, will see him. Even they who pierced him. Who pierced him? Who pierced him? We all did. But I think primarily this is a reference to Israel. Okay? Every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Notice now, this is not referring to the rapture. Because... When Jesus comes in the rapture, he comes for his church, not with his church. When Jesus comes in the rapture, not every, he's going to come as a thief, first of all. Not every eye is going to see him, but only the redeemed who are caught up to meet him in the the clouds. So he doesn't even come to the earth. He comes, he kind of meets us halfway, if you will, and he raptures us off of the earth But he comes secretly. He comes invisibly. Only the redeemed can see him. The world, they don't know what's happened to all these people who have suddenly disappeared. What is being spoken of here in Revelation 1 verse 7 is obviously the second coming, which is going to be witnessed by all the people of this world, especially the repentant nation of Israel. In Matthew 27, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, Verse 27, Jesus is talking about his second coming. And he said, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Unlike what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, of course they had predicted that he was going to come back in 1914. So when he didn't come back visibly, they said, well, he came back, but invisibly. Quietly into a secret chamber where he is now ruling the earth. Really. I'm disappointed. If Jesus is on the throne and Satan is bound, I got to tell you, his chain is a little too long for my good. No, Jesus warned us in Matthew 24. When he came back, he wasn't going to come tiptoeing to some secret place. He wasn't going to come out in the desert and say, I'm back. Come on out here. He said, I'm going to light the sky up with my second coming glory. 
as lightning flashes across a dark sky, every eye is going to see me. I mean, his glory is going to light up. And I just envision, as the earth is in the throes of this ungodly war, and there is death everywhere, and as Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, all flesh would be wiped out on the face of the earth. I imagine darkness. I imagine death. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this hopeless situation, here comes Jesus. I mean, lighting the sky up in the distance. Can you imagine the people of this world going, what is that? Is that a comet? Is that, what is that? Just this point of light in the distance. And as it gets closer and closer and closer, it's obvious it's Jesus Christ with a whole cloud of saints riding on white horses, clothed in white raiment, coming back to the earth to establish his kingdom. Man, that is incredible. And the Jews who are alive are going to repent as they see him. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Turn to Matthew, go left. Because Zechariah records this in chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Now you have to understand the context. The whole world has assembled against Israel. The Bible tells us at one point, the entire world, including the U.S., that's why I really get nervous about our next president. Because if they're not a strong friend and ally of Israel, and they turn their back on, our nation turns its back on Israel. As God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And the only thing I can see that God is, why God hasn't judged us already, is because we have been, been remained a friend to Israel. But that could change. It's going to change at one point. We know that because the Bible says that all the nations of the earth are going to be gathered together against Jerusalem, against Israel. At that point, of course, Israel, you know, the Jewish people are very tenacious people. I really respect them. They have survived in the most difficult of circumstances. Of course, it's been the grace of God. Many of them don't realize that. They just think they're really tough. And they are. I, they're certainly tougher than me. But at this point, when the whole world is against them, they realize we're not this tough. And the whole world wants to destroy us. And at that point, in verse 10, God says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. What did Jesus say before? Well, one of the last things he said before he left Jerusalem for the last, well, for the last time until he was crucified. And he walked down the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives where he sat down and his disciples came to him and wanted to know what were going to be the signs of his coming in the end of the age. They asked that question because just before that, before he left the city, he said, your house is left to you desolate, and you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a lot of commentators believe what's going on here is when Israel's back is up against the wall, God is going to pour upon them a spirit of supplication, and they will petition their Messiah. They will basically humble themselves in brokenness and say, God, we can't do it. We can't do it. Don't forget most of Israel today is a secular nation. I mean, they talk about God and 
There are Orthodox rabbis and things and people, but for the most part, they are a secular, agnostic, and many of them are atheists. And now, when it looks like the end has come and they are going to be completely destroyed, God pours in His mercy a spirit of supplication. They are broken of their pride, and they humble themselves and cry out to God. And then, it says, then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Jesus is going to return. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. As they finally realize that Jesus Christ is in fact their Messiah, whom they crucified, whom they had Pilate Pierce, he wanted to let Jesus go, but it was the Jews who insisted he had him crucified. But honestly, every one of us put him on that cross. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. He died for my sins. I put him on that cross. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. Set free.